Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, has been hit by a major earthquake. It was already a disaster zone. And now this. Earthquake in Haiti say around 70,000 bodies have so far been buried in mass graves. On the 12th of January 2010, a massive earthquake measuring seven points on the Richter scale struck the Caribbean nation of Haiti. As the sun rose, the nightmare was only just beginning. The hospital is collapsed, the, the, the national palace is collapsed. They already had little here, now many have nothing. Haiti's worst quake in two centuries decimated the impoverished country and pushed an already fragile healthcare system to breaking point. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from MSF, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Javid Abdulmanium, an A&E doctor living in London. Well, welcome to the podcast, Javid. Thank you very much, Nick. Javid is an incredibly experienced doctor whose career spans the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean, and bringing medical supplies into Syria. But his time in Haiti working in the aftermath of an earthquake came before all of that. So that was 2009. No, it was 2010. So I would have been 31. I had my 31st birthday there, I just remembered. Yep. Back then, Javid was relatively new to humanitarian work, and his ideals were pretty far removed from the reality he would find on the ground. We've worked so hard to get to MSF, and we want to arrive and change the world and, you know, conquer illness. And when your supervisor says no, then you, I think we, we just need the realities, your expectations and your realities need to be aligned a lot more before you go into the field as a newer medic within the organisation. So I understand that now with hindsight, and I think if that gap between reality and expectation had been narrowed somehow before I went there or while I was there with with proper explanation, then I wouldn't have found it so difficult. Javid had been on his first ever assignment with MSF when the earthquake struck Haiti. I was actually in Iraq on my first mission for MSF when the Haitian earthquake struck. And it very quickly became evident that this was going to be big for MSF, all hands in. And so as soon as I finished my six months in Iraq, I took four weeks holiday only and went straight out to Haiti. It was supposed to be a routine six-month assignment working to restore healthcare to a country whose infrastructure had collapsed. But it turned into something much more as a deadly outbreak of cholera swept through the country and Javid's mental health was pushed to the limit. Even as somebody relatively new to MSF, Javid was thrown in at the deep end. So we'd taken over a surgical hospital and made it into a, uh, an obstetric, surgical, inpatient medicine and inpatient paediatric hospital. And we were going to hand that back to the Ministry of Health at the end of the six months. And I was there working as the head of A&E, the emergency room, the medical inpatients and um, the ITU services as well. Javid had arrived six months after the earthquake had struck, but its effects could still be felt. I'd never been in an earthquake. I arrived in Haiti uh, on the 1st of June, and the earthquake was January the 12th. So this was some time after the earthquake, and yet the signs of destruction were everywhere. I mean, buildings collapsed left, right and centre. And, you know, you'd see two or three storey houses fully collapsed. 
But just to paint a picture of what we were going into, even at that stage, you would see people. I, I took a picture, I remember it very clearly, of a man reading a newspaper in this rubble, taking, getting shade, uh, you know, very hot. It's, it's you know, really, really hot in Haiti in June. And he casually reading a broadsheet underneath this sort of concrete slab that had crushed, you know, a three-story building that had collapsed. And if you looked at his leg, he still had on his leg X-Fix. X-Fix is a big metal skeleton wires that you know that go right through your, your your leg if you have a broken bone that's been broken and smashed very heavily now that means that he if he likely had that operation just after the earthquake here he was lying in rubble with that still on his leg six months later where was his health care who had put that in and who had not completed it for him why had that not been completed that's what haiti was like even at that point in june you know, and people just living in tents, people living in tin houses, is, you know, it, it was a huge thing for that country. Haiti would be one of the most transformative experiences of Javid's working life, not just because of the devastation left by the earthquake, but also because Javid would be forced to realize his limitations as a doctor. I wasn't prepared. I didn't process it at the time. It left a, a scar. Um, it was the first time I'd done a project in French, so I struggled initially. It was the first time I had such a large team to supervise in three different departments. It was the first time I was exposed to so much avoidable death. It was the first time I felt quite so helpless in not being able to do what I knew I could do for my patients. These people would not have died had they been in front of me in a hospital in England or in the Western world, and that was hard to deal with. You know, the people shouldn't be dying this way. I had no way to make diagnostics. It was hard. I had the most simple of uh, interventions. As an A&E doctor working in the UK's National Health Service, Javid had seen his fair share of death. What Javid found in Haiti was unlike anything he'd experienced before. This was as a result of the system. I mean, Haiti has no resilience in that self. The health structures are weak by virtue of being one of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, but uh, by virtue of being overwhelmed, by virtue of their, you know, at the, at the end of the day, MSF is difficult. When and I, I didn't have that uh, perspective at that point, but. When I say difficult, I mean difficult as a clinician. You can be there as a doctor facing a patient and you might be able to say to yourself, I actually know exactly what I need to do for you, but I don't have the tools. And you could ask your supervisor, can you give me those tools? And they'll say no. Even as a large humanitarian organisation, there are limits to what MSF is able to offer its patients, and it's not possible to treat every medical condition people present with, as you might in a fully resourced hospital back home. And it's really hard to be able to process that no from your supervisor, if you don't know why they're saying no. And I didn't at that time and I was never given the explanation why. And I was too young, I think, and inexperienced to ask why. And invariably the answer is, we can't do everything for everyone. We have come with a narrow 
scope. We've come to do X. We can't start doing Y and Z. And then that's really, really, really hard when you're faced with that patient in front of you and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And this was all before the cholera even came. You know, if I had five months of low-grade psychological warfare <laughs> against me, I had one month being my last month in Haiti when I'm already tired of a full-on assault with cholera. I mean, I had never seen the likes of it. Javid felt hamstrung by the level of care he was able to offer his patients. But one patient managed to change his outlook and it couldn't have come at a more pressing moment. Just 10 months after the shattering earthquake that killed so many comes the looming threat of another natural disaster. A hurricane was brewing off the coast of Haiti and what was already a bad situation was about to get worse. No wonder there's panic. Survive an earthquake and risk cholera. Survive cholera and risk the high winds and rains determined to tear away your shelter. The following is a story written by Javid about the moment he was handed a letter by a patient in Haiti. Three years later, Javid finally felt ready to pen his response. This story is read by actor Robert Jameson. Dear Dr. Javid, I salute you in the name of he who, through his death, gave us life, Jesus Christ. Thus starts one of the most important thank you letters of my life. The setting is Haiti, 2010. Post-earthquake, intra-hurricane, pre-cholera. I cried when I read it then. I cry when I read it now. But today, I cry different tears. The patient who wrote it doesn't know how much it means to me. I haven't seen or heard of him since the day he gave it to me. Perhaps he has died since of another near-fatal asthma attack. I'll never know. But even today, in my darkest moments, all I have to do is recall his letter and I'm comforted. I went to Haiti with MSF in June 2010 to help reinstate emergency and internal medicine services at our hospital in Seat Soleil. Sun City is the capital's gang-ridden slum and is anything but filled with rays of hope. I found violence, accidental trauma and infectious diseases. Death, death and death. We were busy that November in Seat Soleil. Hurricane Thomas was due the next day. We intended to evacuate the entire ground floor of our 100-bed hospital to the first floor to avoid the expected flooding. The logistics of the move had taken our team one week of planning and preparation. Persuading the Haitian staff and patients to enter the building's upper floor, which had no quick escape route in case of emergency, was difficult. People were still scared, despite it being nearly 11 months since the earthquake. I'd been there almost five months. It had been very hard, and I still had to persuade myself every day to remain, not to give up and go home prematurely. As head of the medical department, I was to supervise our part of the evacuation. I made the rounds of the 22-bed tent, which served as an inpatient ward, with the aim of discharging as many patients as possible. The wind had really picked up and gusted ominously through the tent. I wasn't even sure how many spaces I'd been allocated upstairs, tucked away at the back of the neonatal ward. It was going to be a tight squeeze. I remember thinking, is there room for this one? Evacuate upstairs or discharge? Then I was handed a letter by a patient. Oddly, I couldn't recall him at all. 
The resident doctor told me the patient had been admitted a week previously with acute asthma and cardiac arrest. She confirmed that I had seen him when I was called into the emergency room. He had not responded well to nebulizers, a device that enables you to breathe. Then he had a seizure followed by a cardiac arrest. Still, I had no memory of him. Then suddenly it came flooding back and I couldn't believe I'd forgotten him. I remembered, he was young. I watched his eyes cloud over as he stopped breathing. He continued to struggle and looked straight into my eyes. We tried every treatment available, adrenaline, aminophilin, magnesium and salbutamol. We carried out CPR for what seemed an age, through three arrests and three returns. I reflected afterwards that I'd forgotten ketamine, but we would never have been able to intubate him anyway, since there were no ventilators and no blood gas measurements. He had survived and he had written me a letter, which read, He who despises his neighbour sins. Blessed is he who pities the poor. Proverbs 14.21 God is the source of life, but it is for man to try to conserve it. God raised your spirit and you did not abandon me. Therefore you are blessed. You are blessed by God in your hard work in saving life. I tell you, thank you. The biggest words in the human dictionary. I was reading this eloquent letter in the busy tent in front of him as he prepared himself for discharge. The beds were being lifted up around us by the orderlies. The nurses were dismantling their desks. The medication was being packed away by nursing assistants. The logisticians were taking down the electrics and securing the tent. It looked like it would start to rain at any moment and he was watching me as I cried. Why was I crying? Because he was my exception to the rule of death in Haiti because I was ashamed that I had forgotten him, because I was tired, because I had had enough, because he touched a raw spot. Hurricane Thomas did not strike us with full force that night. It swerved north at the last minute. The cholera epidemic arrived in the capital with the overflow of rainwater the next day. My last few weeks in Seat Soleil swept me up in a whirlwind of vomit, diarrhea, and much more death. I'd never before seen so much unchecked misery. It took me a while to recover. I took away many memories, both fond and foul. I took away one particular memory of one particular patient. I took away a letter. The following is my response. Mr. Letter Writer, I salute you. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write back, but I was hurt by Haiti. You've helped me a lot and I haven't forgotten you. I can honestly say that I have struggled every day with what I do and why. My need to find fulfillment in what I do overtakes me frequently. Sadly, I am often left despondent after my day's work. I don't know when I became this full of angst. Did I make the right choice in becoming a doctor? It's been 13 years since I graduated. Should I still be asking that question? Your letter helps me answer it. Your letter addresses my needs, allays my fears, and gives me emotional support. Your letter shows me that the doctor-patient relationship runs two ways. I'm not sure that this is revolutionary, but it has been to me. Your letter reminds me to be kind, gentle, patient, and humble, even if I don't feel those things some days. I feel as indebted to you as you felt to me. Do you think of me as often as I think of you? May the all-powerful grant you a lengthy and successful career which you accomplished so well. B. 
Be blessed by God forever, Dr. Javid. Thus end your letter. The biggest words in the human dictionary and mine. Thank you. Overworked and under-resourced, this letter may just have given Javid the impetus he needed to stay in Haiti. Do you know, in Haiti, I was there was a very slow, creeping, unconscious sense that I was just not achieving anything. Everybody I saw was dying. And so he, in a very short, sharp, intrusive way that I, that I needed, he jolted me back to reality by saying... I'm here only because you did something and, and I'm proof that you haven't failed in, in what you're trying to achieve here in Haiti. It came at a crux, you know, it, it was, I was into my last few weeks. I had just had my, my second breakdown <laughs> and, then that, and then he gave me that letter and it was just like woof, tears everywhere. Haiti may have narrowly missed the worst of Hurricane Thomas's destructive power, but it brought with it something just as deadly. The cholera outbreak in Haiti is spreading, with the disease already responsible for killing more than 800 men, women and children. But it's not only the storm itself the aid community fears, it's the water that's left behind and the possibility it might carry further the deadly spread of cholera. You know, it was a, it was the first the first day after Hurricane Thomas came. Floodwaters came through, heavy rain washed in the cholera into the slum, and I swear the next day I was walking out of that at the end of my night shift. I'd had a horrible trauma patient, a man hacked to death by vigilantes for having stolen a woman's purse. Fingers, arms, he bled to death in front of us. I had to change my clothes just on the night shift for the hurricane. Change my clothes. What's that? There's some people with cholera symptoms. Oh my gosh. And that was, you know, five patients. And the next day, 16. And the next day, 20 something. By the end of the week, 200 a day. How can you keep up with 200 patients a day? You can't. And you're still running your hospital. You know, it was boom, 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 boom. That sense of disorder and inability to cope is a real sort of. Uh, trigger for, for feeling any psych, like psychological ill health. So basically I had a bit of a PTSD essentially, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from that. Cholera is a diarrheal infection transmitted by contaminated food or water. It spreads rapidly within communities where there's poor sanitation. A cholera infection is often mild or without symptoms, but can sometimes be severe, resulting in profuse watery diarrhea, vomiting and leg cramps. The patient rapidly loses bodily fluids, leading to dehydration and shock. Without treatment, they may die within hours. Mothers would lose their children. One day I lost a, a, a child a day for seven days, back to back. One child died every day for seven days in the paediatric ward. I don't want to say they weren't sad, but it was almost like they expected to lose a child. The, 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 the paediatric death rate is so high that I, 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 it felt like all of these mothers ex expected to lose a child at some point in their lives. And that's harrowing. You know, we do not expect to lose a child when we give birth to a child in the UK. Yet these mothers almost had that 
feeling, a sense of inevitability that, that one of your children would die from an infectious disease because they don't have that level of healthcare that we have. And that's unfair. You know, it's, it's that disparity, it's that unfairness in the world that can be very hard to deal with. But just the death, just death, 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 people coming in wheel, wheelbarrows. I mean, it was, it was, we were overwhelmed for all, for all the preparedness we had. There were more people than we were, could be possibly prepared for in that first two weeks. It's hard to imagine the psychological toll it must take witnessing so much death, day in, day out. And it's only in hindsight that Javid began to appreciate how difficult that experience actually was for him. At the time, you were sort of galvanised. Right, we've got work to do. I'm going to do this. Right, you know, I'll, you volunteer yourself for the extra night shift. We all did. You know, at the time, you're like, I'm getting on with it. And then it was only years later, even now, or when I came to write this piece, some three years after I left Haiti, that I realised how hard that was for me. There are things that I'm really glad I did and things that I'm very proud that I did. So Haiti is both. Now, with the benefit of time and that distance, I can say I'm so glad that I accomplished that. I'm proud that I didn't give up you know, after either of my breakdowns or after, you know, I, I, I stuck it out to the end and I didn't give up. Now it puts a smile on my face when I think of him. Uh, I feel that I achieved some sort of mental closure. Uh, so thinking of him is really a positive thing. Uh, he was a young guy. And I do wonder if he's still alive. I hope so. There's no way to know. Um, I can't think of instances that make me think of him immediately, but every time I think of Haiti, I think of that. I mean, Haiti is still the defining experience of my life. Fortunately, that experience didn't put Javid off doing more assignments with MSF, and he's gone on to work on some really important projects, not least MSF's response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. But hearing his story gives us a poignant reminder about just how life-changing this kind of work can be. People sign up expecting to help save lives, but often neglect how it will affect their own. Next time on Everyday Emergency. This is a refugee's reality. I was never thinking about one day I will be a refugee. But here I am, I'm a refugee and now I'm an asylum seeker. It's for, with me forever, till I will die. I will never forget this moment that I spent with my mom. We talked to a man who fled from ISIS in Iraq with his younger brothers and their mum and embarked on a five-month journey to the UK. On the way, he became separated from his mother and then passed through 70 refugee camps across Europe looking for her. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.